Kubrick's Universe, Episode 3, Shane Rimmer. Real one. Our highly skilled team are focused on bringing you the optimal experience. So many answers we may never know. Too many questions get on with the show. Time for the chorus, only this bus. It's true to you. Open the podcast doors, Hal. It's Kubrick's Universe. The Stanley Kubrick Podcast. Pilot to navigator. I'm ready with a few figures now. We have 109,000 tonal, 79,000 in the mains, and 30,000 in the auxiliaries. And that works out to roughly seven hours, 15 minutes endurance for this time. Yes, yes, yes. Welcome back, everyone. It's a brand new episode of Kubrick's Universe. Thanks so much for being with us. At the boards is the phenomenal one, our producer, Mr. Stephen Rigg. I'm your host and humble narrator, Jason Furlong. Listen, we have for you today a great guest. I'm referring, of course, to Shane Rimmer. Now, Shane was born in Toronto, Canada in 1929. In 1959, after a successful singing career on Canadian TV and radio, he was brought to England by legendary director Dick Lester to appear as a singer in an ITV special called After Hours with Cleo Lane. There, he fell in love with and married an English dancer and moved to London full-time. In 1963, Shane played the editor in a BBC soap called Compact, and the following year, he was offered his first major film role in Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove. Yes, Shane played the co-pilot of the ill-fated B-52 bomber. Shane's appeared in more than 70 features, including the James Bond films You Only Live Twice, Diamonds Are Forever, Live and Let Die, and The Spy Who Loved Me not to mention other highly regarded movies such as Rollerball, The People That Time Forgot, Warlords of Atlantis, Superman 1, 2, and 3, The Dogs of War, Reds, Gandhi, The Hunger, The Holcroft Covenant, Out of Africa, A Kiss Before Dying, Space Truckers, Spy Game, Batman Begins, and, drumroll please, Star Wars, A New Hope. Now, Shane is a legend in the world of Jerry Anderson Productions, providing one of the most recognizable voices in Super Marionation history for the classic Thunderbirds show's character, Scott Tracy. He's also the voice of Dick Spanner, P.I., in the cartoon series of the same name. Shane's appeared in TV episodes of The Saint, Danger Man, Doctor Who, UFO, and Space 1999 on British TV, and he's also written and appeared in The Protectors, The Persuaders, and several episodes of K-1, 
Captain Scarlet and the Mysterons, Joe 90, and The Secret Service. Shane has also performed in national theater productions, and he's a published writer. So, wow. Hello, Shane. It's a real pleasure to have you with us. Thanks so much, and welcome to Kubrick's Universe. Well, it's a pleasure. I, I, you know, I, I honestly had forgotten some of those, but uh, why I came over in Canada, which is a great country, and I loved it, uh, there just wasn't a, a film industry uh, that had, be, had begun to, to, to work. So that's why I came over, and I was very lucky, because uh, I not only got my first um, international big picture, uh, which was Dr. Strangelove, but there was Stanley Kubrick uh, to direct it, who I don't think anybody would um, have any reservations about. Everybody loved Kubrick. He was a, I came to regard him as a kind of good shepherd because in a big film like this, people have problems or mm. they get, uh, they tighten up. And he, he was absolutely immense with this. He, he was very quiet and very assured. And they mm. went away and um, were in a much better situation than when they, when they came to him. So it was a delight, the picture. Uh, the, the, uh, the cast got along very well. It was an exceptional cast with uh, Peter Sellers mm-hmm. and George C. Scott, Keenan Wynn, mm-hmm. Sterling Hayden, and uh, Cowboy. <laughs> Every time Slim I Pickens. say his name, I start the line. Slim Pickens. Yes. At the time, uh, and he came into the picture a little later after a, one of the only dark episode that uh, anybody experienced in the film. And that was when Peter Sellers got it in his head, uh, a, a massive complaint against uh, uh, Kubrick, and he charged. We were in a, uh, 13 weeks, we were in this plane uh, mm. at the studio. Anyway, he charged right across to, uh, to Kubrick. Uh, just before the picture began to shoot, they cut away the part, the first part of the uh, of the plane, so the camera crew could find some room to shoot. Right. Anyway, he came there, and all of a sudden, he was in the in midair. He didn't stop, so he went ten feet into into space, fell down on a very concrete floor, broke his leg. I mean, everybody went into a spin over this, but. Uh, Kubrick, uh, as, as usual, uh, got out of the situation. Um, he was standing at the front of the plane, and, and uh, uh, <laughs> Sellers just whizzed by him. He, I mean, when you fall 10 feet or even more, uh, yeah. you, you pick up speed on the way down. Yeah. Anyway, uh, it made it absolutely imperative that they got somebody to, to take uh, to take. Peter Sellers' place. He was doing four roles. Well, he could get away with some of them. Uh, he could get away with a with a strange love role in a wheelchair. But the other ones, uh, they they had to get somebody else just to to ensure that everything was going to not fall apart. Well, when I play the president of the United States of America, that is this makeup I have on here. I play Doctor Strange Love. He is a German a nuclear physicist, and I play a British. Um, Royal Air Force, do they call it, officer, um, uh, 
uh, group Captain Mandrake. He had already uh, wrapped uh, shooting the roles for President Muffley and uh, group Captain uh, Lionel Mandrake, if I'm not yeah, mistaken. Yeah. But then he was it, all over the picture. I mean, you know, it was an immense sort of effort that he made. Anyway, he ended up in a wheelchair, and um, Kubrick got in touch with an actor he, he was, had been very impressed with a long time ago. He didn't even know whether he was still active or not. His name was Slim Pickens. Mm-hmm. He was a character. Um, and he talked to Pickens for about two minutes, and Pickens agreed to come over and do the part. He was a, he was he added a lot to the picture. The only problem was with his cowboy twang mm-hmm. that he had. Uh, it was sometimes difficult to understand what he was talking about. Look, boys, ain't much of a hand at making speeches, but I got a pretty fair idea that something doggone important's going on back there. And I got a fair idea of the kind of personal emotions that. Some of you fellas may be thinking. Heck, I reckon you wouldn't even be human beings if you didn't have some pretty strong personal feelings about nuclear combat. But I want you to remember one thing. The folks back home is uh, counting on you, and by golly, we ain't about to let them down. Tell you something else. If this thing turns out to be half as important as I figure it just might be, I'd say that you're all in line for some important promotions and personal citations when this thing's over with. That goes for every last one of you, regardless of your race, color, or your creed. Now let's get this thing on the hump. We got some flying to do. Anyway, it worked. He, he filled in well and kept the picture afloat, and everybody was very happy with it. And even uh, Peter Sellers and and Kubrick came to peace again. Uh, Sellers dropped any complaints he had, and the picture got on uh, happily, and everybody was very happy about that. That's um, great. I, I think a lot of Kubrick fans, you know, have to wonder uh, what the film would have been like if uh, Sellers had uh, played Major Kong as well. Yeah, yeah, he was. He was a very talented man. He was a bit quirky. That was the only thing. He was, as we found out later, uh, going back to Switzerland every weekend and getting uh, psychoanalyzed or psychoanalytic uh, sessions with his, uh, uh, I don't know what you call, what do you call somebody who tries to straighten somebody out like that? Anyway, it was working, I think, and uh, he he would come back on Monday and be very refreshed and continue with the part, so uh, that part was uh, working okay. In order to guard against surprise nuclear attack, America's Strategic Air Command maintains a large force of B-52 bombers airborne 24 hours a day. Each B-52 can deliver a nuclear bomb load of 50 megatons, equal to 16 times the total explosive force of all the bombs and shells used by all the armies in World War II. Based in America, the Airborne Alert Force is deployed from the Persian Gulf to the Arctic Ocean, but they have one geographical factor in common. 
They are all two hours from their targets inside Russia. The uh, Cold War was really, you know, at the time very hot and, you know, Strange Love having been filmed in early 63 and then released about a year later, January of 64, I believe. You know, the Cold War was very uh, volatile. That was a really yeah. volatile time in geopolitics and world history. So my question is, were you personally aware of the potential threat of, you know, global nuclear annihilation at the time you took on the part? Oh, yeah. I think everybody was. I mean, the uh, it started off as, not as a joke, but it was treated very lightly. Then all of a sudden, incidents started to pop up, and they saw that it was a it was serious, and it could develop into a an, an absolute world war. Um, but that's Kubrick was always of the opinion that the way to treat something of seriousness. What to joke about it? Mm-hmm. Make something to make light of it, mm-hmm. and that's what the picture was about. It was a, it was trying to take the sting out of this possibility of a world war. Yeah, but he certainly accomplished that. Um, oh, I think it so. Is, it's a film that stands yeah. the test of time and is, uh, uh, you know, has. Uh, current significance, I think, given the, the, the situation uh, we're living in today. Did you yeah, uh, did you have any talks with Stanley, even uh, as an aside, about your own personal feelings and his regarding I that? I didn't. No, I didn't. Uh, I, Stanley hardly ever had a rare moment. I mean, he had time to uh, uh, fix up situations that were falling apart a bit. Uh, you know, with, with, with mainly personal things. Uh, no, I didn't. I just, uh, it was my first picture. I, I really didn't know uh, what the boundaries were. Uh, and I was tremendously um, thankful for getting that part. And also, you know, uh, with, with Kubrick, it was an experience. I still remember very, very starkly. Um and so uh, I'm not sure whether anybody else did or not. There were a lot of people around and very intelligent people in the cast and in, the, uh, in, in Stanley's entourage who uh, obviously, you know, were not dismissing this, this sort of thing. Uh, and uh, we're all on Kubrick's side when they really realized what he was doing, which was trying to make light of a very possible serious situation. And mm-hmm. they were all together on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so there we are. That's, you know, that's fascinating. I just uh, would have been remiss to not ask if, uh, you know, you both had the uh, 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 that discussion, given that you were both obviously uh, very concerned with what was going on at the time. And he did handle it in, you know, as you say, with, you know, with humor and... Uh, yeah. I just don't think of there's any example of anyone really hitting the nail on the head uh, yeah. the way he did. He turned it on its ear. And uh, mm. Strange Love is a film that many people feel will be relevant uh, for many, many years to come. Uh, oh, I'm sure you're right. I'm sure you're right. 
Stanley was a, a marvelous director. He found sort of an under underflow in his pictures, uh, and you became more and more and gradually aware of what he really was up to. Uh, and actually, he was incredibly popular with everybody. The only people he wasn't terrifically popular with was Hollywood, because they never were certain uh, what he was going to do with the picture. But he made so much money for them, uh, they didn't complain very loudly, because he was one of the, the top filmmakers of, of, that, of that time. So, yeah, I just wanted to mention well, a couple of other people that were uh, when Stanley was uh, casting the parts, please. the crew parts. I, I mean, I don't know how he does it, how he did it. Uh, anyway, he, he got three of us plus another one. The three were Canadians who had come over uh, like I had. We didn't come over together or anything, but they had been over in uh, the U.K., for some time, and doing as I was, trying to get into pictures, because Canada just hadn't started on a movie production thing yet. Mm -hmm. um, and James Earl Jones, uh, and you know, he later became Darth Vader in, in Star Wars. He was a tremendous presence, and in America at that time, he was climbing in popularity because he was making good pictures. He made the picture about the fighter. Uh, Jack Johnson, I think. So he was doing some some big stuff. Major Kong, is it possible this is some kind of loyalty test? You know, give the go-code men recall to see who would actually go. Ain't nobody ever got the go-code yet. An old ripper wouldn't be given his plan R unless them Ruskies had already clobbered Washington and a lot of other towns with a sneak attack. Yes, sir. What uh, Kubrick wanted was us to do everything wrong, not totally wrong, but uh, we spent most of our time picking up things we just knocked over or uh, bumping into others. Um, we were like another Max, Marx Brothers, really, because everything we did just rebounded on, on the situation. He loved it. He loved it because uh, it's, it's exactly what he wanted. Do you remember your first meeting with him at, with Stanley at Shepperton Studios? And uh, w was there an audition process involved? Oh, yes. We, we, we had to film it. Uh, I, I think we did it at Pinewood Studios. Uh, we went in and, and um, he had a, a, a kind of a, just a, a passage. To, but he just wanted to see how we uh, moved, uh, mm -hmm. the kind of accent we had because he wanted... North American accents, uh, and so we are. So the th uh, three others and myself got 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 in as crew, and we were absolutely delighted because we hadn't been in anything as big and as important before in our lives. You know? And now you're working um, with yeah Stanley Kubrick. Yeah, he was a lovely man. Um, a, a lot of our conversation that day. Um, Turned back to the to the picture. Of course, it's the only thing we had really in common, and um, it it was something he <laughs> what he did do was say, you know, I had to review all the stuff that you guys did, and uh, it was great, but some of it just is unbelievable. So I had to leave it out. So please excuse me for uh, for for doing that. 
I think he had a lot of trouble with the uh, front office in films who are always trying to pull a, you know, pull a, uh, I don't know what you call it, just curb him a little bit. Yeah. Anyway, uh, he he managed to survive it, and as I say, he, he did so well for them, they really couldn't get too, too ponderous about the whole thing. But I'll never forget that day. It was a warm July, uh, and there wasn't a cloud anywhere in the sky, and our, our encounter was near sublime. It really was. And uh, were there other actors with you uh, that ended up no, in the films? No, it was just day? the two of us. Wow. Just the two of us. Um, I don't even, I, I'm not, I, I saw one, one of them, uh, a few years later, and, and told him about it because he didn't know that I'd, uh, that uh, Kubrick and I had got together just for a, a conversation uh, on that July afternoon. But uh, it was sort of a private thing, but most mm-hmm. enjoyable. And I'm certainly delighted that it happened. Uh, for every good reason in the world, my friend, to touch back on James Earl Jones, who you know, has a remarkably understated screen presence uh, for a, a, a smaller role. Um, yeah. he, he, he was quoted as saying that it wasn't until he arrived on set that he discovered Slim Pickens had been cast in the role and that he'd been expecting <laughs> Peter Sellers to be his group leader. Was that also your recollection? No, I, don't, I didn't know anything about that. Hmm. Um, I, we had, uh, of course, when we first came in, uh, and the shooting was the next day. He welcomed us and um, just gave us a sort of a general um, rundown of the, of the picture where, where everything was and uh, then brought the uh, assistant over and, and told him to take care of us and put us in our proper dressing rooms and to look after everything we needed. That was all. It was very really short and very... You know, it wasn't like the changing of the guard or anything mm-hmm. like that. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like you were taking it in stride and. Uh, oh, I think understa- so. Yeah, yeah, understanding what was going on. Um, did yeah. you feel like? Did you feel like you were taking part in something? You know, not just special, but uh, something that would withstand the test of time. Or does a, an actor ever really know something like that in the moment? I don't think you know. I mean, you get a. You get a sense that this was important, uh, first of all, with uh, Kubrick, and secondly, with the theme of what, what it was all about. Uh, I mean, it's, although it, uh, it was fanciful in some ways and, and uh, n- not totally serious, but behind the picture, the intention was, was very serious. Mm-hmm. So you did mm-hmm. get, you did get a, a feeling that... Uh, it was going to be a good good picture anyway, no matter no matter what, with Kubrick in charge. And there was just one question: uh, How would the world take this? I mean, right. you know, the man is making making uh, light of a possible uh, <laughs> end of the world, right? Um, you know. So, uh, but I think Kubrick had the kind of reputation that nobody was. Uh, he, he wasn't going to get foolhardy about this thing. He wanted to say something about uh, what the situation was in the world, and that was all. That was all. He wasn't condemning anybody or whatever. So 
everybody was was okay with it. And it is remarkable how he so deftly pulled that off. I mean, you talk about striking an almost impossible balance, making yeah. A, yeah. A, a, a dark comedy about uh, global thermonuclear annihilation. And, yeah. you know, orig- yeah. originally it was going to have with the world leaders having a pie fight. I mean, only Kubrick could have, you know. Yeah, that was too bad. I saw a little bit of that, but the production office in, in Hollywood uh, canceled it. Can you tell us about uh, that? Recollections of seeing. I don't. Film? I don't. I just. I mean, we were stuck up on the plane, in yeah. the bomber, and of course, other people would tell us what was happening, and and uh, but we we really didn't get a good look at it. It was. It's like we were in a seclusion of some kind. Range twenty miles. Missile still closing distance and tracking steady. Attack range gate on maximum scale. Range gate on maximum scan. Range 10 miles. Missile track deflecting. Continue evasive action. Deflection increasing. Range 8 miles. Deflection still increasing. Range 6 miles. Well, all of your scenes were set in the cockpit of that B-52. You know, you had to share space with, you know, actors. Again, you know, great actors. Slim Pickens, James Earl Jones. And... You know, the, the, that cockpit set is of the B-52 bomber has been described as being the size of a linen closet. Yeah. What can you tell us about uh, your, your recollections of shooting your scenes inside the B-52? Well, it was a bit of a pain, to be honest. A bit of a, I mean, 13 weeks is a long time. Uh, and, you, you know, you, you, you're fairly comfortable, but you're still inside a bomber. Uh, and, all, and we do, you know, we did get out. Uh, climb down the ladder and uh, have a little bit of a walk every once in a while. But uh, you were still um, <laughs> sort of away from everything, which was a pity because there were some great things going on, and uh, we didn't get a chance to see a lot of them. Well, there we are. I mean, we didn't want to quibble about that particular part of the, uh, of, of the movie because we were all incredibly... Uh, thankful that we were even in on it. To get the, uh, some of the shots in that really, you know, those those close quarters of the B-52 cockpit, did, uh, do you recall if Kubrick himself used uh, his lightweight, uh, it was a handheld 16 millimeter camera inside the set of that B-52 for those tight action shots and uh, that, that, that yeah. scene with the explosion, the fire scene after the uh, the, yep. uh, the SAM, the, the SAM missile detonation. Do you, you do recall if uh, whether or not Stanley was operating the, the the camera for several of those shots in the car? Oh yeah, he. I mean, he was uh, his uh, career started off as a uh, photographer mm-hmm. for Look Magazine in America. Yes, yes, yes. and he was top man. Uh, so things like that uh, were were no problem to him. Uh, it's just whether they they wanted him to risk. You know, some some of these situations were pretty tight, and explosions mm-hmm. and things like that uh, always have a kind of a uh, 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 well. You're not entirely sure how it's going to go, so they they weren't too happy with him getting too close to that to that mm. situation. He seems to be a man who is willing to take a calculated risk, though. I mean, calculated being the operative word. 
Yeah. Um, he did it all his life. Yeah, and and all in service of uh, of his art and, uh, and and getting the best yeah. possible result. Well, we're here at Shepperton Studios, just outside London, where we finished Stanley Kubrick's Doctor Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb with Peter Sellers. It's a unique film, and one that I think is going to be uh, uh, controversial and provocative. You know, George C. Scott, another. Uh, legendary actor, you know, he played uh, yeah. uh, uh, General Turgidson. He described in uh, one interview, uh, I believe, is, as that uh, he described Kubrick as being self-effacing at times and even apologetic on the set. Um, did you find him to be of similar manners as uh, no. George C. Scott? I didn't. No. Uh, but uh, some of these conversations and these, you know, these group conversations when, especially if there was a snag somewhere, uh, they could get a bit fiery, I understand. As I say, we were <laughs> quite some ways away, so we didn't really think, but I I, um, I think it's probably a pretty good assessment. Self-effacing and, and apologetic, I'm not sure whether that's going a bit too far. Uh, I mean, Kubrick was in charge of the picture, and unless something really um, in, incredible happened, I don't think he would get too uh, apologetic or, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, this kind of thing. Well, that's interesting that, uh, you know, different people worked with him would have uh, uh, different takes, but uh, he did seem a rather malleable person. I'm sure he felt when and where he needed to apologize, he would, and if he didn't, let's... Oh, he would. And, yeah, if, and if not, let's keep moving forward with the project. He was one of the most naturally uh, behaved and, and uh, operating uh, director I've ever known. Mm -hmm. He was just one of the guys, without yeah. dropping his, his seniority in, in, the, in the way of things, you know, so... Mm -hmm. Um, I'm just fascinating. I mean, now, was he receptive to any particular suggestions from you that you recall? Or do you recall any of your uh, colleagues, other actors in the B-52? Was Stanley receptive to any particular, su particular suggestions regarding dialogue or action during the, uh, the, your time on the shoot? Was there any uh, addition of uh, improv dialogue, say? That he was open uh, to, yeah. I think he uh, he would consider everything, but I can't remember any changes going on because one of the crew. Um, I mean, with um, with uh, the fellow who took over from uh, Peter, uh, Slim Pickens. Uh, sometimes you couldn't understand what he was saying because he had this incredible Western twang. Yeah, uh, he he might have um, uh, received and, and taken some. Uh, some advice on that, I don't know. Uh, but uh, Kubrick, as mild-mannered as he was, was his own man. Mm. And uh, he was in charge. So that's all I can tell you about it. I mean, from a, a slightly distant uh, view of him. No, I, th I think these are, uh, this is a rather illuminating view, personally. And uh, I'm sure the listeners are going to agree this is... Uh, 
this is gold, Mr. Rimmer. Thank you. You're you're being wonderful. Um, so you know, Doctor Strangelove, the the film has been uh, described over the years as you know a black comedy, a satire, and uh, comic nihilism uh, by certain critics. Uh, did at the time, did you get a, a strong sense of the humor and the comedic nature uh, behind the tone of the film while you were on set? Oh yeah, it, it, that that was mainly with the uh, with the people who played in the sort of cabinet. Uh, mm. I can't think of their names now, which is terrible. But there, there was a lot of uh, exchanges going on, which which uh, commented on on what they were up to in a way that you know, are we sure we know what we're doing? I mean, what mm. happens if with a big if? Uh, so a lot of that was was being muttered. Uh, I think um, Sellers had the had the top run, so he was, um, you know, obviously the man who was uh, sh- shooting off most of the volleys. Dimitri, look, if this report is true and the plane manages to bomb the target, is this is this gonna is this gonna set off the doomsday machine? Are you sure? Well, I I guess you're just gonna have to get that plane, Dimitri. Dimitri, I'm sorry that jamming your radar and flying so low, but they're trained to do it. You know, it's 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 initiative. Look, Dimitri, you know exactly where they're going, and I'm sure your entire air defense can stop a single plane. Listen, I mean, it's not going to help either one of us if, 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 if the doomsday machine goes off now, is it? Dim- Dimitri, there's no point in you getting hysterical at a moment like this. Dimitri, keep your feet on the ground when you're talking. Dimitri, I, I am not, I am not getting, uh, no, Dimitri, I'm, I'm just worried, that's all. With regards to uh, to your characters, the co-pilot Ace, do you? I mean, do you have any recollections about? There's some. Uh, there's been a bit written about uh, the early shooting script in which uh, your character uh, was meant to die during uh, an airborne attack over Russia. Do you remember anything about that early script? I didn't even know about. It. No, honestly. Um, <laughs> no, no, I. Uh, you know, we're not privy to everything. And I think uh, with these things, I mean, with Kubrick, and what was the name of his writer? Do you, do you have it? We've oh, written uh, a lot of things like this. Ter- Terry Southern. Yeah, yeah. He he had that sort of, um, uh, what do you call it, slightly uh, ironic kind of taste in, in his writing. He was a damn good writer. But uh, he, he never, never was able to keep it quite out of what he wrote. Uh, mm. Kubrick was, was, you know, favored him ter- terrifically because his writing really suited the theme of the picture better than anything else could have. There were apparently some scripted uh, racial exchanges, and this comes from a, this source is uh, Mick Broderick, who is uh, a noted historian on the nuclear age, and he's also the author of Reconstructing Strange Love um, inside Stanley Kubrick's nightmare co- comedy. Mick Broderick uh, is a wonderful guy, and we were fortunate to uh, interview him as well. Mick was great, uh, and uh, 
kind enough to offer us a couple questions. And uh, this one comes from some of his research, and it regards your recollection, if any, of some scripted racial exchanges and uh, subsequent making up between the characters of Major Kong and the bombardier Zog, uh, you know, James Earl Jones, who were to crash the uh, uh, the nuclear bomb-laden B-52 after the others had bailed out. This is according to mixed research that was originally part of this story. Do you have any recollection of that? No, not at all. It's the first time I've heard of it. Um, a lot of these things uh, are offered and uh, you know put up to see what everybody thinks about them, mainly mm. Kubrick. And either they're accepted or they're not, but I don't remember anything about, anything about that. Well, I'm glad we here at the Kubrick's Universe were able to, uh, I, can't, I, I can't believe it, this is an honor. I've uh, shared a bit of info with you about a film that you were involved in. That, uh, That's a pleasure. That will stand the test of time. Uh, we're wondering at what point during the production or when was it that you, uh, it, was it when you saw the film? Uh, did you learn about Kubrick's choice for the, the finale, the, the grand imagery of the doomsday machine exploding and concluding with a nuclear montage to uh, yeah. the, 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 the strains of the beautiful Vera Lynn? Was it a surprise mm. when you saw that for the first time? Uh, not surprised because we had a, a hint of how the thing was going to be finalized, but I was what I what what I was was impressed. I thought the ending was absolutely uh, knockout. I don't think it could have been any better, uh, and it also kept in tune with the slight, um, not too serious tone of the picture. Uh, I, I thought it was in, in it was perfect because of it, the uh, there was that touch that was uh, still carrying out Southern's kind of... Uh, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> <business>. <laughs> a bit of sardonic wit behind all of that. and uh, Yeah, I, indeed. Yeah, that's, that says it better than I did. No, it's, it's great. You're wonderful you know, to answer all these questions and just give us all this insight. Really, really amazing. You know, Kubrick and uh, James Harris, who, you know, had worked as a, a director-producer, their partnership together on uh, his previous films, The Killing and Paths of Glory and Lolita. But then they parted company just before Strange Love went into yeah, production. Strange. And, yeah, mm. but what is, is stra Stranger Still, and what I think our listeners will find fascinating is that uh, the very next film you worked on after Dr. Uh, Dr. Strangelove was The Bedford Incident. That was James. Harris's directorial Yeah, James debut. Harrison. Uh, that was with Widmark, wasn't it? From the company that brought you the Kane Mutiny comes another stirring story of high courage at sea. Nerve-shattering suspense, the hide-and-seek, life-and-death search for the enemy below the icebergs. All systems go, all nerves taut, for that head-on showdown they call an incident, the Bedford Incident. But uh, he, was, he was a nice fellow, James. He was. He was. Uh, well, he always played uh, second fiddle to uh, to Kubrick. I mean, I, mm. whatever Kubrick wanted, he delivered, and he was a a great man for 
um, getting things done. And yeah, whatever yes. uh, Kubrick needed, he got. The Bedford incident also uh, had uh, young Sidney Poitier and who would, you know, go on That's to right. be a legend. Yeah, yeah. Amazing, amazing. You got to work with these people. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just wondering if it at any point dawned on you that you'd gone from, uh, you know, working on, you know, Strange Love as your first picture, and then the next one is, uh, you know, his former producers first picture as a director yeah james Harris. no i hadn't made any connection there at all i mean most producers and directors move from picture to picture so mm -hmm. uh the fact that you you meet one uh who was in the, the former picture uh you know you you can't put too much on it um because they're always in motion these guys that's, that, that does seem to be par for the course. And Stanley being a man in constant motion, and we know he was first and foremost a family man and uh, loved to have his family visit him on the set. Uh, we have to know, uh, Shane, did you get to meet uh, any of his family? They no, I never met anybody. I think, you know, if they came along, they would probably uh, keep it kind of private. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I, I, I had no idea that uh, this sort of traffic was going on. <laughs> How about Terry Southern? Do you recall uh, him being on the set? I can't. He might have been because I have no idea what he looks like. I'm sure he he was around because um, he was there quite a bit, else. apparently. Yeah. Well, I'm sure he would, and I think that. Uh, he and Kubrick were mates, and, and I think if any suggestions came from Southern, uh, they would be very seriously considered by Kubrick. He, uh, he regarded him very highly. It's, 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 it's been wonderful for me and a, a personal honor uh, to get to chat with you um, as a lifelong uh, Stanley file myself. So thank yeah. you. I, I, I just want to ask one last question, Shane. If, isn't it, it is, if you ever came across uh, Stanley again after the shooting? Um, we met again uh, 30 years after the picture was shot. His wife was a painter and a very, very good one. And she arranged a meeting near Oxford. The, the festival was called Art in Action, and she was showing some pictures, some paintings there. Uh, they were very, very good. Um, and she arranged a meeting between uh, myself and, and Kubrick, and he pulled up in a battered old... Um, <laughs> What was it? What was it? Mercedes. That's Mercedes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He slid out of the driver's seat, came over, hand outstretched, uh, dressed as he always was in a, an open check shirt, jeans, <laughs> and shoes that still needed a buffing. And for a man reputed to uh, have turned almost reclusive. And that was true, unfortunately. He was warm and welcoming and as naturally disarming as, as I remember him. So we did have a lovely afternoon, and, and uh, although it, it didn't go on forever, I think maybe under an hour, and then he was uh, back into his battered old uh, Mercedes. Away he went. Off he went, yeah, amazing. I want to... Uh Thank you from the bottom of our hearts for taking your time and joining us and answering 
so many questions you've been so giving with your time. Stanley is worth it. You know, it was great because uh, he's not going to uh, advertise himself anywhere. So I think it's up to other people to reflect on him and, and uh, you know, uh, talk about his importance as a, as a, a film director. Shane, Mr. Rimmer, thank you so, so much for joining us. It's been a real treat, sir. Well, it was, it was, a, it was good. The questions were, were good, and, and uh, I think we got the man pretty, pretty well showing. You know, he, he, as I say, he certainly deserved it. He was, he was a, a good fellow. You, you've just been great. So I hope we've done some justice to you by uh, getting to know more about you as well, Mr. Rimmer. You've been wonderful. <laughs> okay. Anytime. And it's Shane. Don't call me Mr. Rimmer. I'll clock you. Duly noted, sir. I w- All right. That's, that's great. Okay, lad. Thanks. Thanks very much. It was. It was a nice. It was a. It was a good. A good. Uh, a good exposure of the fellow. We meet again. It's the end of the show as we know it, and I feel fine. And you just heard actor Shane Rimmer recalling some great memories from his time working with Stanley Kubrick on Doctor Strangelove. We spoke with Shane on the 13th of September 2017. You can hear more great stories from Shane in his book, which is called From Thunderbirds to Pterodactyls, which has a foreword by Jerry Anderson, and you can get this book directly from Shane's website at shanerimmer.com. I'm sure you were all enjoying the sound of our host and interviewer, the fantastic Mr. Jason Furlong, who is doing a great job with our special guests. Jason has also created some special music pieces for this episode. Thanks again, Jason. Don't you go changing. Also, thanks to author Mick Broderick, who helped us with research for this episode. And if you want to get a more detailed look into the production of Dr. Strangelove, you should pick up a copy of his amazing book, Reconstructing Strangelove, which is pretty much the book on Dr. Strangelove. If you want to take a look at the film Dr. Strangelove, then I can highly recommend the latest release of the film by Criterion, uh, which includes a whole host of great additional materials. I'd like to invite you to join our online community at the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society on Facebook, where you can chat to other SCAS members, of which we have over 14,500 at the moment. Uh, thanks to James Marinaccio, Anthony Adler and Jason Furlong for all the hard work that they do there. Next episode, we will be speaking to Italian author Mr. Filippo Oliviere, who has written a book called Stanley Kubrick and Me, 30 Years at His Side, which has become an essential Kubrick book since its release and has gained a reputation of being arguably the most intimate portrait of Stanley Kubrick out there. We will now leave you to listen to Ross Parker and Huey Charles's We'll Meet Again, performed by Dame Vera Lynn, who has just turned 100 this very year. We hope that you have enjoyed this episode of Kubrick's Universe and thanks for listening. I'm Stephen Rigg. Tatty bye. Thank you for listening to the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. Come back soon. Tell them I won't be long. They'll be happy to know that as you saw me go, I was singing this song. Don't know where, don't know where, but
It's Kubrick's universe. We just live in it. We have taken very thorough precautions in this podcast against broadcasting anything which might only be attributed to human error. 